Okay, so we are starting um, chapter two of part three of on the mode of existence of uh, technical objects. Um, so right, we finished chapter one um, last time. Uh, so chapter one had to do with um, the sort of first stages of his philosophical anthropology, his genesis of different modes of existence of uh, the human being. Um, so we started with the magical mode of existence, which is structured by um, these key points. Um, so the sort of network of key points uh, in space and time. Um, and then the magical mode of existence splits into figure and ground uh, um, principles or, or separate modes of existence concerning figure and ground. So the figural mode of existence would be the technical. Um, so this is characterized by its uh, possibility of detachment from its surroundings. So it's not tied to these key points anymore. It, um, you can take a technical object and move it and use it anywhere um, with the same uh, efficacy. Um, and then the ground aspect is um, the religious mode of existence, which is characterized by this um, uh, sort of um, universality. Um, it's not tied to any location it, because it's uh, um, a universal principle. Um, and then, so we saw the, um, the sort of split in the magical mode of existence that, that creates these different um, subsequent modes of existence. And then now we're going to see I believe, if I remember correctly, now we're going to see the um, the ways in which those modes of existence are related to each other. So how the split is um, sort of repaired in the a second uh, second instance, and those um, uh, those unification, secondary unifications, are going to um, institute new modes of existence. Uh, so we'll see the aesthetic uh, and the philosophical, and and so on. Um, so that's where we're starting at today. Uh, so I will start reading. Um, so chapter two, relations between technical thought and other species of thought. Uh, section one, technical thought and aesthetic thought. According to a genetic hypothesis such as this one, it would be best not to consider the different modes of thought as parallel to one another. Thus one cannot simply, uh, sorry, one cannot compare religious thought and magical thought because they are not on the same level. But on the contrary, it is possible to compare technical thought and religious thought because they are contemporary to one another. In order to compare them, it is not enough to determine their particular characteristics as if they were a species of a genus. One must return to the genetic realization of their formation, for they exist as a couple, resulting from the split in primitive, complete thought, which was magical thought. As for the aesthetic thought, it is never characteristic of a limited field or of a determinate species, but only of a tendency. It is that which maintains the function of totality. In this sense, it can be compared to magical thought, provided, however, that one specifies that it does not contain, as magical thought does, the possibility of splitting into techniques and religion. Indeed, far from going in the direction of, of a split, aesthetic thought is what maintains the implicit memory of unity. From one of the phases of splitting, it calls upon the other complementary phase. It seeks totality in thought and aims at recomposing a unity through an analogical relation where the appearance of phases could create the mutual isolation of thought in relation to itself. And this is this is interesting that that relation between magical thought and and aesthetic thought that um, I was so curious about when in the beginning of this part um, I think that this is this is a this is interesting characterization as a kind of um, kind of an in on the grounds of like an epistemic limitation 
like a, or some kind of reflexive epistemic limitation. Uh, what do you mean by the last bit there, or reflexive epistemic limitation? Well, the, the mutual relation, um, well, let me see the exact word. The, mu the mutual isolation of thought in relation to itself um, at the very end, um, this seems to be, this, this is kind of what I refer, mean or with those terms, I guess, is, or this is how I interpret that to be a certain sense in which um, thought, the relation of thought to itself um, indicates something in which thought and itself being thought are in, are isolated from one another. So there's some kind of um, um, lack of systematic uh, functional relation, I guess. I don't know exactly what, what to make that. What are y'all's thoughts? Um, the way I understand that that last phrase, so like from, from the last semicolon onwards, um, is that um, aesthetic thought um, sort of is a return to unity where the um, where the appearance of these phases of the split uh, from the magical unity would um, uh, maybe would have a tendency to create a, a sort of isolation of different spheres of thought from each other. Um, so if if that tendency towards splitting was not uh, compensated by this tendency towards unity, then you would have this mutual isolation of of thought in relation to itself or of different um, different modes of thought in relation to each other. That's how I understand that, that last bit. Um, well, I, uh, I don't know how clarifying my remarks would be at this point. I just, I think that there's, there's some point in which there's some kind of internal division within thought or between two parts of thought um, that differentiates magical and and aesthetic thought, and insofar as aesthetic thought is merely analogically related, and that can can't split into religious and technical thought, is that? I don't know. I don't know if that was that was clarifying, but that was kind of where what my my interpretation of that last bit was. So it was probably about the same. I keep thinking back to this uh, image he gave us earlier uh, of this symbol on as the token. Uh, you see the technical uh, mode of thought and the religious mode of thought, uh, each are the uh, each house of the uh, total magical uh, token, let's say. So they are broken pieces. And it seems to me what aesthetics does is it perhaps doesn't exactly put them together, but uh, creates a new artificial token, coins and Eve coin, and it serves as an Eve uh, unity or totality uh, in the way magical uh, universe used to. Yeah, I think that's a good um, a good image to bring up because he's always, or, or that's, that's an image that sort of recurs constantly in his work of, of that that symbol on. Um, and uh, yeah, so we have a, a breaking of unity and then a, a restoration, uh, a secondary restoration of unity, um, which is not identical to the original unity because it, uh, um, as 61 pointed out, it doesn't have that capacity for, for splitting into um, 
techniques and religion again. Um, so it's a, it comes after the split um, between techniques and religion. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next paragraph if someone would like to read. I can read. Um, give me one second. Such a way of approaching aesthetic effort would undoubtedly be untenable if one thus wanted to characterize works of art such as they exist in their institutional state in a given civilization, and even more so if one wanted to define the essence of aestheticism. But in order for works of art to be possible, they must be made possible by a fundamental tendency in the human being and by the ability to experience the aesthetic impression in certain real and vital circumstances. The artwork that is part of a civilization uses aesthetic feeling and satisfies, sometimes artificially in an illusory manner, man's tendency to seek a complement with respect to a totality. When he exerts a certain type of thought, it would be insufficient to say that the work of art manifests a nostalgia for magical thought. The work of art, in fact, grants us the equivalent of magical thought, since it recovers on the basis of a given situation and according to an analogical, structural, and qualitative relation, a universalizing continuity with respect to other situations and to other possible realities. The work of art reestablishes a reticular universe, at least for perception. But the work of art doesn't really reconstruct the primitive magical universe. This aesthetic universe is partial, integrated, and contained in the real and actual universe that has emerged from the split. In fact, the work of art above all sustains and preserves the ability to experience aesthetic feeling, just as language sustains the ability to think without nevertheless itself being identical to thought. It's, um, here he's, he's contrasting uh, or he's sort of warning about a, uh, an incorrect approach to, um, to the, the work of art, which would be to consider it only in relation to um, uh, to a certain civilization or, or a certain, um, uh, uh, I guess, cultural uh, environment. So he wants to tie the work of art not to its uh, civilizational background, but rather to these fundamental modes of existence. Um, and so he says that, so it's not to say, of course, that there isn't um, a respect in which uh, works of art are related to the civilizational background. Um, but that that capacity to appreciate a work of art within a given civilization is dependent on the more fundamental capacity for aesthetic experience. Um, that's that's how I understand this uh, this bit here in this uh, this paragraph. And I guess another point would be um, the way that. Um, the work of art, um, as he says, it, it remakes a reticular universe. Um, uh, so in the sense that um, the same way that uh, in the magical universe, you had this reticulation or this structuring of the universe into these key points in space and time, uh, the same way you have in the work of art, you have these uh, sort of this new type of key points in the work of art, which, you know, there's a, a singular work of art in a specific place in a in a gallery or wherever it is, um, um, rather than uh, the, the technical object that can be sort of transported and 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 reproduced in any uh, uh, in any number of copies.
I think that there, there, um, there's a a fairly broad uh, granting of powers of ascetic thinking um, in terms in terms of uh, at least the the start of an argument for something like this when he says that a universalizing continuity with respect to other situations and to other possible realities. I mean, that that's a fairly uh, broad and uh, important kind of uh, 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 value, I guess, um, this, this type of universalizing continuity. Um, it doesn't seem as though like this would be in comportment with like a subjective perspective on on art reducing it to kind of merely feeling but rather that um, per participation in aesthetic thinking does something which is um, a, something universal and something which kind of is embedding sort of 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 us into other contexts in a very direct way so um, and it seems like a very 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 strong realist account of aesthetic thought so far um but of course it he's there's still a, the 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 reference to aesthetic feeling so um but i don't think that we should take this as meaning that that this power is just in terms of like a purely subjective perspectival feeling right um that there is something which is kind of happening in the world with with these aesthetic judgments that they have like objective norms or something. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think that's right. There's, there's definitely not going to be, um, um, uh, yeah, it's not going to be a sort of subjectivist approach to art, which would reduce it to, you know, feelings of aesthetic pleasure, for example. Um, it's, um, um, yeah, it, it's a much more, um, well, it's going to be more complicated than, than just purely subjective. There's going to be, the, like you pointed to, this objective aspect to um, the artwork. Um, and um, yeah, so it, it points, the artwork has this continuity, as he, point, as he um, expresses it, the universalizing continuity. Um, so it uh, it relates the artworks are related related to each other. Um, they form a, a network in the same way that the key points in the uh, magical universe form the network. Um, so I guess we'll have to see uh, as we read on what exactly that means. Um, so in what way do artworks relate to each other and form a network? I've been remembering this. Uh historical cultural connection between Simondo and another thinker. I think they were friends, uh, phenomenologist Michel Dufresne, I think. So he has a book uh, called The Phenomenology of Aesthetic Experience. And I read in the description that he distinguishes the aesthetic object from the work of art. And this is in the scope of a larger work on aesthetic experience. Maybe there is a, a dialogue there to explore. I don't know much about the friend yeah i also basically know nothing about him besides his name um so uh um yeah that'll be something worth uh, looking into um 
um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what exactly the basis is for the distinction between a work of art and an, an aesthetic object in general. Um, it, it sounds like the work of art is a, a subcategory of the aesthetic object, but uh, I'm not sure. And I think um, uh, for Simon Don in, in particular, um, the work of art is going to be distinguished from um, uh, a more general aesthetic object in the sense that um, uh, precisely that, that it has that objective um, objective aspect to itself. It's not um, a purely subjective, something that's just the object of an experience. It's something that is um, um, part of a, a world, uh, a structured world. Um, and Hera has posted in the chat the question, is that because aesthetic experience can also be natural and not from artifice? Um, yeah, that's an interesting suggestion, um, right? So you can have a, an aesthetic experience from a landscape or, you know, a mountain or, you know, a beautiful bird or whatever it is um, that is not, um, that is not uh, a work of art. Um, so that would be something that, uh, yeah, it's an aesthetic object, but it's not an artwork, um, whereas the artwork is always the product of human activity. Um, so yeah, that could be something part of what is underlying that distinction. Um, I'm not sure. We'll have to, I think, uh, find out as we read whether that uh, fits the text. So if someone else would like to read the next paragraph, we can investigate that possibility. I can go. Aesthetic feeling is not relative to an artificial work. It signals in the exercise of a mode of thinking that is subsequent to the split, a perfection of completion that makes the ensemble of acts of thought capable of surpassing the limits of its domain, so as to evoke the completion of thought in other domains. A technical work perfect enough to be equivalent to a religious act, a religious work perfect enough to have the organizational and operational force of a technical activity, give off a feeling of perfection. Imperfect thought stays within its domain. The perfection of thought allows the metabasis ace allow that gives the fulfillment of a particular act universal significance, through which an equivalent of the magical totality, which had been abandoned at the origin, is recovered at the end of human effort. And the world itself must be present and authorize this achievement after a long detour. The artistic impression implies the feeling of the complete perfection of an act, a perfection that objectively gives the radiance and an authority through which it becomes a remarkable point of lead reality and not of experienced reality. This act becomes an outstanding point of the network of human life integrated within the world. From this outstanding point, a higher kinship with others is created, reconstituting an analog of the magical network of the universe. Yeah, it seems like there's definitely that that connection of that difference between the the work of the product of an, a, a piece of an individual piece of art versus the aesthetic experience that differentiation yeah it definitely seems as if that insertion into the network uh or into this world um is is part of what makes up that distinction um so the work of art is something that um, because of this perfection, this quality of perfection that it has, 
it sort of reaches beyond itself to other works of art that have that same quality of perfection. Um, um, whereas a, an aesthetic experience would be something that's sort of self-contained. You just have this uh, uh, aesthetic experience, uh, but it doesn't reach beyond itself to another work of art or to another aesthetic experience. Um, so I think I think that's uh, sort of along the, the right track um, of uh, what that distinction entails. Isn't there uh, some sort of old connection between uh, architecture uh, and uh, a religious act in the form of prayer in the history of medieval thought, something like that? If you are a great, uh, let's say, a religious official who can get a, a great temple built, then it is equ equivalent to a prayer. Um, yeah, I know. I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're thinking of, but there, there's um, like within uh, medieval churches, there's often like a, a chapel dedicated to a, a certain prince or whoever that uh, that you know basically paid for that chapel to be built. And so the act of of uh, building that chapel serves as a religious act. Um, um, so yeah, the you the construction of the the chapel or the church or whatever it is um, um, serves uh, as a production of a, a work of art uh, or an aesthetic object, but it's also a religious act at the same time. Excuse me. Um, I think it's interesting the, uh, that that unity seems to be so so related to magical thought, whereas totality seems to be a, a relation related to aesthetic thought. Have, have you all been reading this this distinction in as well? I hadn't uh, noticed uh, a distinction there. I thought he was using unity and totality as as fairly synonymous terms. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll have to keep an eye out for that. I hadn't noticed that. Okay, it could be me reading reading my own my own philosophical interest into the questions, perhaps. And and maybe there's an issue with translation in terms of unity and totality. I'm not sure if there would there would be um there would probably be two separate terms in, in the original, right? Yeah, it would be basically the same in French. So it would just be unité and totalité. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but um, I guess maybe one sense we could make uh, of that distinction um, would be that um, whereas the magical world, you have this sort of uh, overarching unity uh, of the magical world. So everything is, is part of this one magical universe. Um, whereas the work of art forms uh, a sort of individuated totality. Um, so you have one work of art that, that is a totality, whether it's a, a painting has it's a, is, is um, a, a totality or, uh, I don't know, a symphony or a poem or whatever it is. Um, each of them forms a totality. Um, it's, it's a sort of closed world, um, but then it also points to other, um, other works of art um, so uh, yeah, that, that could be one, I guess, way of making that distinction between unity and totality.
but we'll have to see if that fits with uh, with what he says. Um, so we can go on to the next one. Uh, I, I can read the next paragraph. Uh, where are we? Yes. Uh, the aesthetic character of an act or a thing is its function of totality, its existence, both objectivity and subjective, as an outstanding point. Any act, anything, any moment has in itself the ability to become an outstanding point of a new, new reticulation of the universe. Every culture selects the acts and situations that are apt to become outstanding points. But culture is not what creates the aptitude of a situation to become an outstanding point. It only forms a barrage against or barrage against certain types of situations, leaving narrow straits for aesthetic expression with respect to the spontaneity of the aesthetic impression. Culture intervenes as limit rather than as creator. So again, we have this distinction between um, uh, the cultural sphere or the civilizational sphere, um, which um, selects certain situations or certain acts um, um, as um, particular points. Um, and then prior to that is the aesthetic impression or um, um, the aesthetic experience, um, which is uh, the sort of the what is selected. Um, so it's the basis on which those uh, those points are are drawn, I guess you could say. And uh, this uh, narrow straight uh, he mentions, I guess it's the uh, a limiting background for invention to happen as well uh, in aesthetics, for example. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, it uh, this reminds me of something uh, one of my music teachers when I was a kid used to always say is that it's not um, it's not uh, that create creativity or creation doesn't come from um, you know having all sorts of choices, but from having limitations. So you're limited to certain notes or certain uh, colors for painting or or certain forms and so on. Um, having those forms imposed on you um, or imposing them on yourself is how you generate um, uh, a creative work of art. Um, and so that seems to fit with what he's saying here, um, that um, the sort of cultural selection process, it, it uh, imposes these restric restrictions on um, a prior um, aesthetic uh, sensibility or a prior faculty of aesthetic um, experience um, and then those limitations are what give rise to creativity and invention of a work of art i think it's interesting though that that it seems that the, the role of culture is only um i guess this, this would be kind of like a certain a certain kind of like aesthetic like time period or something like a certain like culture of like um art artists in some period of time or something like that because it would be like culturally limited this would only be involved in like the selection of some kind of pre-established forms rather than the kind of uh, broad sense of creation of the forms so yeah that that does make sense in terms of like a, a perspective of creativity from limitation Yeah, I guess there would be sort of a, a two a two level account here. Um, 
So on the first level, you have um, the forms uh, are, or, or the structures of, of the artwork are sort of uh, given by the culture or civilization um, of that time and, and place. Um, so they're, they're just treated as given um, at, at the first level. But then at the second level, you would have um, an evolution of those forms and, and structures themselves uh, through time which um, would also be a, a kind of creativity. Um, um, but uh, yeah, that would be a second order creativity beyond sort of an individual um, creating artists, but as a, a, a civilization or a culture evolves through time. Um, but we'll see, I'm not sure if, um, I'm not sure if Simona really develops that side. Um, I, I can't really remember. Well, here he te he seems to want to relegate it to a kind of um, uh, contingent aspect. No, not not entirely contingent, but um, uh, um, it, one which only has a selecting role versus like a um, ge generational role, a genitive role. No, that's not the right word. <laughs> a create a, a productive role. I don't know. Or a generative, you could say. I think um... generative. Yeah, that would make more sense. Yeah, so there's um, there's a sort of two um, two step process, or, or the process has two um, two uh, elements to it. Um, so you have the generation of these aesthetic experiences, um, which is a, a sort of fundamental uh, faculty of the human being, um, and then you have the selection out of that uh, sort of totality of, of possible aesthetic experiences. You have a selection of certain ones as these uh, remarkable points um, um, of the aesthetic universe. And the, the, the role of the artist um, would be this, this more kind of contingent selection process rather than the, the generation of the artistic or aesthetic forms themselves, I guess, right? Is that the, the main takeaway from? Yeah, I think so. Um, so yeah, for the individual artists, those those structures would be given by the civilization or the the culture in which they are um, brought up and and develop their artistic um, abilities. Um, but then, uh, yeah. So in, in order to look at the history or or the, the development through time of those structures, you'd have to sort of zoom out from the individual artist. Um, um, and and look at a uh, uh, you know a longer scale and and uh, an evolution over you know centuries rather than uh, creation in an individual lifetime. Well, should I read the next paragraph uh, so we don't accidentally talk about this one tiny paragraph for another like hour? <laughs> Yeah, that, I mean, there's lots in each of these paragraphs, so we, we can uh, uh, continue. But um, yeah, I think we can go on to the next one. Okay. The destiny of aesthetic thought, or more precisely of the aesthetic inspiration of all thought tending towards its own completion, is to reconstitute within each mode of thinking a reticulation that coincides with the reticulation of other modes of thinking. The aesthetic tendency is the ecumenism, ecumenism of thought. In this sense, beyond even the maturity of each of the genera of thought, there occurs a final reticulation that once again brings the separate types of thought which emerged from the shattering of primitive magic closer together. 
The first stage of each type of thought's development is isolation, non-adherence to the world, abstraction. Then, through its very development, each type of thought, which initially rejected what is not itself and behaved as a species, after having affirmed itself according to the unconditional monism of principles, pluralizes itself and widens according to a principle of plurality. One could say that each thought tends to become reticular and once more to adhere to the world after having distanced itself from it. After having mobilized and detached the schematic figures of the magical world from the world, technics return to the world to ally itself with it through the coinciding cement and rock of the cable and the valley, the pylon and the hill, a new reticulation establishes itself, chosen by technics, privileging certain places of the world in the synergetic alliance of technical schemas and natural powers. This is where aesthetic feeling appears in this agreement and this surpassing of technics once more becoming concrete, integrated, and attached to the world, attached to the world through the most outstanding key points. The mediation between man and the world becomes itself a world, the structure of the world. In the same manner, religious mediation accepts concretizing itself after a dogmatism that was detached from the concreteness of the universe and having mobilized every dogma to conquer every representative of humankind. In other words, religious mediation accepts attaching itself to each culture and to each human group according to relatively pluralistic modalities. Unity becomes the unity of a network rather than becoming a monist unity of a single principle and a single faith. The maturity of techniques and of religions tends towards reincorporation into the world, the geographical world for techniques, the human world for religions. I'm going to have to be honest, I'm not sure exactly what is going on in this paragraph. It's, it's extremely compl complicated. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, maybe we can go through it sort of um, not sentence by sentence, but sort of in order as we uh, as it goes through, because it is fairly long as well. Um, so maybe the first step would be, um, or the first point, um, uh, is this idea that he introduced a couple paragraphs earlier of the idea of the um, perfection or completion um, as being characteristic of the aesthetic mode of thought or um, um, and and as he points out here it's not it's not just of the aesthetic um, considered as a sort of separate sphere but anything that has that quality of perfection or completion um, has a sort of aesthetic um, value to it um, so uh, any any religious act or, or technical act that has that that quality of perfection um, it thereby acquires that quality, uh, acquires a, an aesthetic value as well. Um, um, but uh, that aesthetic value um, is characterized by that um, pointing towards other aesthetic works as well. So uh, a work of art points to other works of art in the, the network of, uh, of the art world. Um, and so by by having that um, that quality of perfection, it it points to other perfected works. Uh, and so in that sense, it has this um, uh, plurality built into it. Um, 
which is the, sort of the next point. Um, so uh, he gives a sort of schematic um, evolution of a mode of thought, starting from this sort of abstract detachment from the world, um, and then um, the development through uh, uh, this pluralization. Um, I guess insofar as that that work um, or that mode of thought acquires that that quality of perfection, it pluralizes itself by pointing beyond itself. Um, so uh, yeah, so each of these modes of thought becomes aesthetic by achieving that perfection or completion. Um, yeah, so that maybe that's a good place to to stop for for now, and then we can go on to a little bit more later in the paragraph. This is a sentence which I kind of, I got to this this um, phrase, and I just kind of my brain stopped, and I was like, how how does this how does this make sense? The, and this is just in the first part of the paragraph. The aesthetic tendency is the ecumenism of thought. Um, I know I'm, I had to actually look up that word to make sure that it meant what I thought it meant. But um, I believe, I'm, I'm not sure if I even got the full, the account of the word that Simundin was using, or I'm not sure what, um, what he might have meant specifically. Because it seems like a word related to ecumenical, which is like the uh, a kind of more so religious word, but the aesthetic tendency is being differentiated from religion here, and it's supposed to mediate uh, techniques and religion in some regards. So, how is the aesthetic tendency the ecumenism of thought? Do you have how does this work? Yeah, that's a, a, a good point to bring up because it, it is uh, sort of difficult or uh, um, obscure, I think. Um, I think, um, yeah, ecumenism, as he writes it, I think is, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the normal way of, of writing the word. Um, like you, you would write ecumenicism or, or the ecumenical. Um, and so in the sphere of religion, um, ecumenicism or, or the ecumenical approach to religion is um, has to do with relig um, relations between different um, faiths or between different sects of, of a religion. Um, so um, um, like I know that the, um, the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church recognize each other's baptisms, for example, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so that would be a sort of ecumenical um, understanding between two different uh, churches. Um, um, so what does that have to do with the aesthetic um, tendency as he describes it? I think, um, I think, or my, my guess is that it, it's because the, um, the, so the aesthetic tendency here would mean the, the tendency towards this uh, perfection or completion of a work, uh, whether it's a technical work or a religious work. Um, and insofar as the work has that perfection, it, um, it points towards other works that have that same perfection. Um, and so uh, by contrast to the, um, an earlier stage of religion that, um, um, would sort of be, have this sort of uh, um, universalizing um, 
aspect to it. Um, it would be a religion, a religious religious act that um, has its own perfection in itself, and then can be related to other religious acts, and it doesn't require um, a sort of universalism uh, in the same way that the earlier form of religion does. Um, I'm not sure how clear that was, um, if that makes sense. Um, I was I was kind of kind of making some sense of it. Is is the rift between a kind of um, foundationalism? In, in religious tendency versus a um, the ecumenicism, ecumenism is that a distinction because of the the generalizability of the religious tradition or something? Yeah, I think um, we can distinguish, or, or what he wants to distinguish here in the history of religion um, is um, a, a one stage where the religion um, sort of has this universalizing. Um, tendency or or necessity built into it, where it, it has to um, impose itself on everyone, um, and then a, a later stage where that religion um, is sort of has its own um, um, concreteness within itself. It uh, it no longer requires um, everyone to to adhere to that religion, um, and so it it. Uh, it acquires this ecumenical um, character in the sense that it uh, it allows for relationships with other religions or other sects of the religion um, without it having without needing to uh, sort of conquer others. I think that's the the type of development that he's pointing to here and and so he thinks this development um, is characteristic of the uh, aesthetic mode of thought or the aesthetic tendency in religion. so, um, insofar as religion tends towards, uh, or the, insofar as a religious act tends towards that perfection or, or completion, it, um, it doesn't have that same need to, um, to conquer or to impose itself on everyone. It, uh, it becomes more self-contained, and uh, that self-containedness is, is precisely what makes it uh, possible for that, for that religion to have relations with other religions. Um, on a on a mode of uh, equality or um, um, yeah, this ecumenical uh, relationship with others. It's still a fascinating. Um, it's still fascinating in the usage that he uses it here, though, because the the ecumenism of thought. So he's kind of repurposing the ecumenical kind of. Gen generalizability to it, an epistemic grounds rather than just religious ones or, or an epistemic context rather than just a religious one so and but keeping keeping in line though with that generalizability which seems to be important in the ecumenical sense for religious thought and also for um in technical thought as well right the gen general generalizability um, whereas in magical thought, it doesn't seem to me that this generalizability is manifest whatsoever because there's just kind of a primitive unity, right? So um, maybe this is this is the kind of vein that he's that he's working with. Yeah, and I think that points to the the next sort of um, bit of the paragraph um, where he does talk about. Uh, uh, technical objects. So he wants to, I think, um, 
he wants to point to the same type of evolution within technics as in the religious sphere. Um, so there would be an ecumenism of technics as well. Um, and so we have the same, we have this evolution where um, uh, the technical sphere um, um, separates itself from the world. Uh, it has a sort of abstract detachment from the world. Um, but then uh, in later modes of technical reality, when, when we have the, uh, the technical network or the technical ensemble, um, you have uh, a return to the world. Um, so you have the, the cable that stretches across a valley, or you have um, the pylon that is anchored in the hill. Um, so uh, the technical reality um, is uh, sort of anchored in uh, the worlds um, at, at a higher level, um, whereas previously it was detached from the world. Um, so what, in what sense is that same evolution, is that evolution of the technical reality um, a form of ecumenism? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. That's a little bit obscure to me. Yeah, no, I, I definitely read this as he's tying in that, that, that the same thing he's trying to purpose um, ecumenism, ecumenism for in um, aesthetic tendency kind of serving from this religious standpoint. I think that that this is the same coming from the technical standpoint um, um, motivation, or at least uh, like it's the same same general structure or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to accidentally use a, an important word that I shouldn't use, like structure, for instance. But um, no, I think I think that there's a there's definitely something to that 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 generalizability and kind of um, diverging from the foundational account. I think I, I guess that would be the most succinct way that I could sum up that. Yeah, I think um, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you were getting at when you when you, you talk about um, diverging from the foundational, but I think. Um, in each case, you have um, uh, a sort of return to the world, uh, uh, an abstraction or detachment from the world, and then a return to the world. Um, so uh, in the case of religion, it's a return to the social world, as, as he puts it at the end of this paragraph, um, or the human world, I think is the term he uses. Um, and then uh, in the case of technics, it's a return to the natural geographical world um, from which it was originally detached. Um, so it's that sort of circular motion of um, separation from the world and then a return to the world. Um, I think that's for him what character is that second phase, the return to the world that that's characterized as um, an ecumenism. Um, and so that's the aesthetic tendency is that return to the world um, through um, through a perfection of the individual work uh, or a completion of the individual work. Um, whether it's a technical work or a religious work. And th th that makes sense with uh, earlier when when he ended that paragraph with the mutual isolation of thought with itself, that there should be that kind of circular motion of of thought thought and its thought and itself um, at two points in a circle, so to speak. But then that movement. Um, I don't know. I, I, that probably isn't, there's no real circle though. I don't know. I can't really see the circle, but I can see a back and forth type motion. So if that's what that you're getting at, I think that I agree. I agree in that regard. 
Yeah, circle is probably not the right word. It's more of a, I guess, a spiral because it's moving forward at the same time. Um, so it's not it's not just a return to the world. It's not a return to the primitive magical unity. It's um, it's a return to the world um, after the split um, between re uh, religion and technics. So it's a return to a world that already has the structure built into it, um, uh, an integration into a structured world. Um, so it's a yeah, it's a, a sort of spiral or, or maybe a sine wave or something like that, um, where you have uh, separating from the world and then a return to the worlds after um, after a structuring has happened to that world. Um, yeah, so that maybe that's a better image than uh, than just a circle. So we're concluding that this paragraph is a sine wave. <laughs> yes, now we just have to figure out what the frequency of that sine wave is. Mm -hmm. Okay, is there, um, and then there's the maturity part towards the end, if I guess we're towards that part there. Um, I don't know how to express this in terms of phase shifts or whatever, <laughs> but in, in terms of sine waves, um, the, the sine wave has like matured. It's kind of a strange way to go about it, but um, it, it does seem to be that like a, a, a long, a further, a further point in the sine wave or something along that line, you could say that that would be the mature point in the sine wave or something. Yeah, I think if we're looking at it as a sine wave, it's where where the the wave returns to the origin points, um, um, but further along. Uh, so it, it's it's at the origin, or sorry, it uh, returns to the uh, x-axis, um, but but further along the x-axis. Um, so you have um, uh, yeah, you have a an immature starting phase where where um you have this magical unity of the universe and then you have a progression of uh detachment from that magical universe and and detachment from the world uh and then an, uh, uh a, a return um descent back down to the x-axis um but further along so you have a, a new world that is now structured rather than being just uh, an undifferentiated magical unity um, so that's, I think, what he's characterizing as as maturity of uh, techniques and religion. Okay, so we can go on to the next paragraph. I can read. To this day, it does not appear possible for the two reticulations, that of techniques within the geographical world and that of religions in the human world, to analogically encounter each other in a real symbolic relation. And yet only in this way could the aesthetic impression state the rediscovery of the magical totality by indicating that the forces of thought have once again found one another. Aesthetic feeling, common to both religious thought and technical thought, is the only bridge that could allow for the linking of these two halves of thought that result from the abandonment of magical thought. So I, I this might be a... Um not productive way to the question to our, our course of investigation to pursue but um he uses uh, aesthetic there's aesthetic thought aesthetic feeling aesthetic reality aesthetic activity um he, he's using aesthetic for a lot of these things and i'm i think i'm kind of conflating some of them in my mind uh so where i'm thinking like aesthetic aesthetic thought um, and aesthetic feeling, should I think of those as synonymous or generally similar? 
and then aesthetic reality and aesthetic activity seem to be rather distinct. Uh, but I'm not sure about those two. Aesthetic feeling is that 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 which is common to both religious thought and technical thought. Is that the the aesthetic um, aesthetic thought? I know that that's almost like a splitting a hairs kind of question, but no, I think that's a good question um, because I I am not sure of the answer either. Um, it's uh, it does seem like he's using a lot of these terms more or less synonymously. Um, um, so he, he's in this paragraph we have the aesthetic impression and we have the aesthetic. Um, uh yeah aesthetic impression aesthetic feeling um which seem to be synonymous to me as far as i can tell um and then yeah we, we had in previous paragraphs aesthetic thought and aesthetic uh activity i think as well um but they he seems to be using all of these terms i think roughly synonymously i'm not sure if there's a um a sort of uh clear differentiation of these different terms uh as far as I can tell, there doesn't seem to be. I'm thinking uh, maybe in this context, uh, there are some expectations of uh, scholastic precision. Yeah, I mean, uh, normally he's a fairly precise writer. He uh, he does, you know, have his, his sort of technical terms um, that he uses with a certain meaning and he, he sticks to that meaning. Um, so it, it would be, uh, you would expect that he would, um, um, be precise with his use of these terms. Um, but, uh, he does, um, I guess there's still some room in his, in his writing for, um, synonymity or for having multiple ways of expressing the same thing. Um, so yeah, I guess. I'd have to go through this again, what we what we've read so far, and see to what extent he he does differentiate between these different terms. I think um, one one point um, putting putting that question um, aside for a minute um, or or leaving it in the background. Um, one point in this paragraph that is interesting is that it seems that um, aesthetic thought for him is not um, successful or it, it doesn't. Um, so it, it should perform this reunification of the religious and the technical, but it's not, um, it doesn't succeed at doing that. Um, so he says, um, uh, so this date does not appear possible for the two articulations. Uh, to analogically encounter each other in a real symbolic relation, so um, the technical, the technical, and the uh, religious sphere are not properly unified in the aesthetic um, sphere or mode of existence, um, uh, and so we have to go on from the aesthetic to another higher um, form of unity, which will be philosophical thought, as we'll see in the next paragraph. So I think we can go on to the next one if uh, someone would like to read. Uh, I can go. Uh, philosophical thoughts, in order to know how to deal with the contribution of techniques and religion at the level of the distinction between the theoretical and practical modalities, 
can thus ask itself how aesthetic activity deals with this contribution at the level prior to the distinction of these modalities. What is broken in the move from magic to techniques and religion is the first structure of the universe, in other words, the reticulation of key points, which is a direct mediation between man and the world. And aesthetic activity preserves uh, precisely this structure of reticulation. It cannot really preserve it in the world, since it cannot substitute itself for techniques and religion, which would be to create, recreate magic. But it preserves it by constructing a world in which it can continue to exist, and which is at once technical and religious. It is technical because it is constructed rather than natural, and because it uses the power of applying technical objects to the natural world in order to make the world of art. It is religious in the sense that this world incorporates the forces, the qualities, the characteristics of ground that techniques leave out. Instead of objectivating them by enclosing them in the tool or instrument, as technical thought does when it works on the base of dissociated figural structures, aesthetic thought limits itself to concretizing the ground qualities via technical structures, staying in the space between religious subjectivation and technical objectivation. It thus makes the aesthetic reality, which is a new mediation between man and the world, an intermediate world between man and the world. Hmm. So there's a direct line from magical thought, aesthetic, aesthetic thought to and philosophical thought, and that they're both involved in this um, this reticulation of key points. Um, but I think uh, as I'm pretty sure that everything is involved in that more so because that's the um, what would be the kind of trace left over from from magical thought that is supposed to um, inform the rest of the different categories of thought here. So that that alone doesn't really say much. I'm not sure if that is an independent line, but there's a there's a kind of symmetry involved with aesthetic thought and magical thought that I think philosophical thought is supposed to capture as well. Yeah, actually, I think I was wrong when saying that this paragraph was going to um, uh, sort of delineate what philosophical thought does. Um, uh, so he just sort of alludes to philosophical thought in the first sentence, but then he doesn't really develop more than that. Um, uh, in what follows. Um, but uh, yeah, there is this um, aesthetic aesthetic thought or aesthetic activity is a sort of echo of the the primitive magical unity and its um, structuring into these key points. Um, but it doesn't just restore that that structure. it uh, it's uh, which would just be a, a return to magic. Um, it's uh, it has to unify uh, the, the the technical and the religious um, in a, a new way. And uh, the the subject object uh, divide, which was initiated by the split into religious and technical thought, plays a pretty significant role in in his explanation in this paragraph too. Right. So we have um, the religious side is the subject side, and then the technical side is the object side. Um, but in uh, in aesthetic thought, it's neither subjective nor objective. 
it uh, it has to um, unify both together. And ostensibly in philosophical thought as well, right? Yes, I think we'll see that later on. Um, but yes, uh, the philosophical is supposed to unite those two sides as well. Oh, and also the um, the the structural versus ground um, distinction. I think was um, well. I I was trying to I was trying to map that as well to the 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 religious sub subjectification and technical objectification that um, the concretizing the ground qualities would be related to religious subjectiv subjectivation and the concretizing the technical structures would be related to the technical objectivation. Yeah, um, I think the, the figure ground distinction maps onto the subject object, or sorry, object and subject uh, distinction. So the figural is the technical uh, uh, reality, which is the object side. And then the ground is the, the religious, um, which is the subject side. Um, so yeah, that's how they map onto each other. Uh, okay, okay, that that's a much more linear perspective than than the diagram would indicate, I guess. That um, it seems that in, in this split, which is, um, it seems to be into kind of these mutual parts that are incommensurate. It does seem that there is like that um, there is a kind of uh, fun, more fundamental kind of order, I guess of figure over over ground uh yeah so sorry that that's just at the first level um the uh um yeah so in the first split into uh of magic into um technics and religion the the figure and grounds distinction coincides with the subject object distinction but then we also have further splits into figure and grounds later on uh which um which we haven't seen yet, but we, we will see at some point. Okay, so the, the figure and ground kind of um, extends past the subject-object division. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, should I go on to the next paragraph, I guess? Sure, sounds good. Aesthetic reality, in fact, cannot be said to be either properly object or properly subject. There is, of course, a relative objectivity to the elements of this reality, but aesthetic reality is not detached from man and from the world like a technical object. It is neither tool nor instrument. It can stay attached to the world, for instance, by being an intentional organization of a natural reality. It can also stay attached to man by becoming a modulation of the voice, a turn of phrase, a way of dressing, it does not have this necessarily detachable character of the instrument. It can remain integrated, and normally it does stay integrated within human reality or the world. A statue is not placed just anywhere. A tree is not planted just anywhere. There is a beauty of things and of beings, and a beauty in the ways of being, and aesthetic activity starts by experiencing it and by organizing it, by respecting it when it is naturally produced. Conversely, technical activity constructs separately detaching its objects and applying them to the world in an abstract and violent way. Even when the aesthetic object is produced in a detached way, as a statue or a lyre, 
and that's lyre, L-Y-R-E. This object remains a key point of a part of the world and of human reality. The statue thus placed before a temple is that is what makes sense for a defined social group, and the mere fact that it is placed in other in other words, that it occupies a key point that it uses and reinforces but does not create, shows that it is not a detached object. One can say that a lyre is an aesthetic object insofar as it produces sounds, but the sounds of the lyre are aesthetic objects only to the extent that they concretize a certain mode of expression, of communication, that already exists in man. The lyre can be carried like a tool but the sounds it produces and which constitute the true aesthetic reality are integrated into human reality and the reality of the world. The lyre can only be listened to in silence or with certain determinate sounds, like that of the wind of the sea, uh, the, that of the wind or the sea, and not with the noise of the voice or the murmur of a crowd. The sound of the lyre must integrate itself into the world in the same way the statue becomes integrated. Conversely, the technical object, insofar as it is a tool, does not become integrated because it can act and function anywhere. So he starts off. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, it will be better if you perhaps unpack it a bit. Um, it's fuzzy for me. Sure. Um, yeah, so we can start just with. Um, uh, so he, he starts off the paragraph with what we were saying uh, in the previous paragraph, that the aesthetic object is neither um, object nor subject, uh, or aesthetic reality is neither object nor subject. Um, so it's um, something that's beyond that that split, uh, or it comes after that split. Um, it's a sort of reunification. Um, but um, uh, but then, so then he contrasts the the detachment of the technical object from the world with the aesthetic object's uh, rootedness in the world or, or um, uh, concreteness in the world. Um, so an aesthetic object is only um, it, it has a, a proper place in the world. It's it's um, you don't just put a statue anywhere. You put it um, in front of a temple or in a city square or something like that, where it um, it has the proper environment, um, and so the same thing also applies in uh, with the lyre, with the music of the lyre. It has an environment, not not in space, but in uh, in terms of uh, like a, a a sound environment. So it, it you can only listen to the lyre properly um, with uh, in silence, or he says with the the sound of the wind or the sound of the sea. Um, but you can't listen to the lyre properly if you're in a, a crowded marketplace or something like that, where you have you know tons, tons of people talking. Um, so each aesthetic object um, has its own proper place in it, its surroundings, uh, where um, unlike the technical object, which can be which is detached from its surroundings and can be used anywhere. I I wonder though uh, that last bit kind of throws me for a loop. Because um, on on the one hand, that seems intuitive, but on the other hand, it does seem like that same criteria for the is related to the ecumenical criteria, I guess that he he wants to posit as related to aesthetic aesthetic thought. Um, 
and uh, I'm not sure um, how, how does that how does the notion of um, interchangeability of in technical thought relate to this kind of con context context dependence I guess or um, I don't know I'm gonna have to figure out how how this how this works through I have to read it read it over again a couple times maybe. So I think, yeah, if I understand correctly, I think you're asking about what is the relation between the distinction he's pointing to here um, on the uh, where the technical object is independent from the world and then the aesthetic object is is um, rooted in the world. What is the relation between that distinction and then the, the development of ecumenism that he pointed to in a, a couple paragraphs ago? Um, uh, is that more or less what you're asking? Right, right, yeah. If if it seems that if if um if does this, I was thinking about the ecumenical aspect as being related to a certain kind of interchangeability, which it seems to be, which he, is what he wants to differentiate the technical object as as having um, uniquely because of its um, it, it's uh, it can it can act and function anywhere, but. It does seem that the aesthetic, the aesthetic thought would be that which would would become integrated and then nonetheless be um, interchangeable and act and function in different places. For instance, like to bring it to the example of the paragraph, you could take a lyre and put it in a like um, electronic music song and and mess it up a lot. And then, it, is it really a lyre? Um, um, anymore. I mean, it, does it produce the sound that it did? I mean, it's, it doesn't seem as though it's limited in, 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 in this interchangeable way that this, this acting and function, functioning anywhere. Um, like in what sense, maybe that's what I don't understand is in what sense is a liar um, ex specifically uh, limited to um, one, one locality or one context? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so maybe part of the answer would be, so he, he does um, admit that the, uh, the artistic object has a relative objectivity, as he puts it. Um, so it does have some, um, some detachment from the world um, uh, and some, I guess, portability. Um, so a, a capacity to exist in different environments. Um, but um, there's still a distinction between um, what you can call a proper place for um, the aesthetic object and uh, an improper place. Um, so the statue that's you know stuck in a basement somewhere that's that's not the proper place for the statue. Um, whereas um, you know putting it in front of the temple or some other um, public place is is the proper place for it. Um, so I think that's the sense in which there's um, uh, a sort of uh, connection to the world or, or connection to a, an environment. It's because there's, um, even though you can move it or, or introduce it into a different environment, it's not in its proper environment if you do that. Um, but it could still have multiple places that would be proper places um, uh, in the same way that there's a multiple, uh, it's not tied to one specific place, but maybe a, a, a selected uh, handful of proper places.
And he'll probably clear it up in the next paragraph. That's what always happens anyway. Well, not always, but often. Yeah, so often he, um, I think he, he his, his thought develops sort of uh, progressively as you read through. So something that might not be clear in one paragraph, you, uh, you keep reading and then the next paragraph makes it more clear. So I can go on and read the next paragraph and then maybe it'll help clear up some of this paragraph. Okay. Um, it is indeed this integration that defines the aesthetic object and not imitation. A piece of music that imitates noise cannot become integrated into the world because it replaces certain elements of the universe, for instance, the noise of the sea, rather than completing them. A statue, in a certain sense, imitates a man and replaces him, but this is not why it is an aesthetic work. It is an aesthetic work because it becomes integrated into the architecture of a town, marks the highest point of a promontory, forms the endpoint of a wall, or sits atop a tower. Aesthetic perception uh, senses a certain number of requirements. There are empty spaces that need filling, rocks that need to bear a tower. There are a certain number of outstanding places in the world, exceptional points that attract and stimulate aesthetic creation, as there are a certain number of particular radiant moments in human life that distinguish themselves from others that call for a work of art. The work resulting from this requirement of creation, from the sensitivity to places and moments of exception, does not copy the world or man, rather extends them and becomes integrated with them. Even if it is detached, the artistic work does not arise from a rupture in the universe or in the lifetime of man. It comes as a surplus of already given reality, bringing it constructed structures, but constructed on foundations that are part of the real and which become integrated into the world. The aesthetic work thus makes the universe bud, extending it by establishing a network of works. In other words, by establishing radiating realities of exception, key points of a universe that is at once human and natural. More detached from the world and from man than the magical universe's old network of key points, the spatial and temporal network of, of artworks is a mediation between man and the world, which preserves the structure of the magical world. I love that. Um, the aesthetic work thus makes the universe bud. Yeah, that's a good line. Um, it's a, a, a very nice image of, uh, of what he's talking about. So I think this paragraph um, is sort of uh, uh, develops what I was trying to point to when we were discussing the last paragraph, this idea of uh, a proper place for something. So um, aesthetic thought is capable of recognizing um, uh, something missing in uh, in the world. So you know you need a, a statue to fill up this space or to to make this square. Um, have a sort of proper structure and, and uh, unification. Um, so uh, yeah, there's a, a, a sort of division of the world into uh, places that require an artwork or that um, that call for an artwork, um, and then just sort of regular places that don't have that same um, um, relation to an artwork. So. Um... It seems like this is uh, uh, generalizing the concept of uh, site specificity uh, to extend all over uh, over all aesthetics. 
Right. I, would I give a historical account of of aesthetics then? Is that what 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 distinguishes it? That it's this, this kind of aesthetic aesthetic historical. Um, I'm not sure what role exactly the historical plays here, um, because so he does point to um, the it's an individual culture that is capable of recognizing the need for an artwork in a certain place or or um, a certain time. Um, so those cultures would be historically determined, um, but um, I'm not sure if the historical is um, sort of a necessary characteristic of the aesthetic uh, reality for him. Maybe something kind of pseudo-historical or prehistorical, not prehistorical, but um, something in a very narrow sense, historical. Historical in that it gives an account of aesthetics in um, embedded in the world and get in some place in some time. So in that sense, that's the only sense I really indicate historical. There, of course, historical in a more broad sense possibly could be could be outside that domain. Okay, yeah, I think I understand what you mean then. Um, yeah, so in that sense, it's historical because it is, so the, the work of art is always um, embedded into an environment, which is a, a certain, a concrete place and time. Um, and so, um, yeah, in that sense, it's, it's historical. Um, but maybe in another sense, um, like, um, yeah, in another sense, I think it would be sort of extra historical because it points to other artworks in that network of, of uh, key points um, or network of, of works of art. Um, so it's, uh, it's sort of, it's rooted in a historical and geographical surrounding, but it points beyond that surrounding as well. And so I, like in the last uh, uh, sentence of this paragraph, he says that the, the um, the temporal network, the spatial and temporal network of artworks is more detached from the world and from man than the magical universe's old network of key points. Um, so it's uh, it's uh, anchored in um, the concrete uh, environment, but it's not um, it's not limited to that environment. It it has a sort of relative, um, as you said earlier, a relative objectivity or um, a relative capacity for detachment from the world. Yeah, the kind of detachment that can still be structure preserving somehow, <laughs> right? Yeah, so it's a detachment that um, that still preserves that structure of a world into points that are appropriate for an artwork and points that are not appropriate for an artwork. Um, so it's uh, you can you can move a, an artwork from um, an appropriate points to an uh, inappropriate point, um, but then the, that structure is still preserved. And then this also applies not just to a, a spatial uh, structure, a spatial environment, but also to temporal structure. So he, he points to um, uh, key points in the lifetime of man. Um, so um, you can think of how you know different ceremonies are accompanied by music, for example, um, as a um, an instance where you have a 
uh, a temporal environment in which uh, a work of art is appropriate or which which calls for a work of art um, and uh, yeah so there's a, a temporal structure as well as a spatial structure okay so I think we can go on to the next couple paragraphs the short ones so I'll read them together It would undoubtedly be possible to affirm that there is a continuous transition between the technical and the aesthetic object, since there are technical objects that have an aesthetic value and that can be said to be beautiful. The aesthetic object can then be conceived as not being integrated into a universe, and thus, like the technical object, can be considered as detached, since a technical object can be considered as an, as an aesthetic object. In fact, technical objects are not inherently beautiful in themselves, unless one is seeking a type of presentation that answers directly to aesthetic concerns. In this case, there is a true distance between the technical object and the aesthetic object. It is as if there were, in, in fact, two objects, the aesthetic object enveloping and masking the technical object. This is the case, for instance, when one sees a water tower built near a feudal ruin, uh, camouflaged by added crenelles and painted the same color as the old stone. The technical object is contained in this fake tower with its concrete tank, its pumps, its tubes. The hoax is silly and seen as such from the very first glance. The technical object retains its technicity beneath its aesthetic cover, hence the conflict that arises which gives the impression of the grotesque. Every disguise of a technical object generally produces the uncomfortable impression of a fake and appears like a materialized lie. But in certain cases, there is a beauty proper to technical objects. This beauty appears when these objects become integrated within a world, whether it be geographical or human. Aesthetic feeling is then relative to this integration. It is like a gesture. The sails of a ship are not beautiful when they are at rest, but when the wind billows and inclines the entire mast, carrying the ship on the sea. It is the sail in the wind and on the sea that is beautiful, like the statue on the promontory. The lighthouse by the reef dominating the sea is beautiful because it is integrated as a key point of the geographical and human world. A line of pylons supporting the cables that traverse the valley is beautiful, whereas the pylons seen on the trucks that bring them or the cables on the big rolls that serve to transport them are neutral. A tractor in a garage is merely a technical object. However, when it is at work, plowing, leaning into the furrow while the soil is turned over, it can be perceived as, as beautiful. Any technical object, mobile or fixed, can have its aesthetic epiphany insofar as it extends the world and becomes integrated into it. But it is not only the, the technical object that is beautiful. It is the singular power of the world that the technical object concretizes. It is not only the line of pylons that is beautiful, it is the coupling of the lines, the rocks, and the valley. It is the tension and flexion of the cables. Herein resides a mute, silent, and ever-continued operation of technicity applying itself to the world. This reminds me of when I would uh, go, on, go on road trips when I was a kid across the US, and I would look out my window and see um, structures in 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 the repetition like light poles kind of passing by and the sense the sense that i got from that was a very very compelling kind of image of like not just a technical object in its individual role but the kind of like um spacing and what more so what the spacing of them implied about their continuity with the world and my continuity with the world, I guess. So there, there was a kind of um, uh, aesthetic value that I derived from a, a technical objects, so to speak, working in, un, working in 
unity with the world, I guess, or something like that. Yeah, I think um, that sounds like the type of experience that he has in mind here. Um, um, so it's it's not um, it's not a technical objects being sort of decorated that makes them beautiful. And he uh, he actually considers this um, a sort of a, almost a deception um, when you sort of dress up a technical object um, in a supposedly beautiful. Um, you know, decoration or something like that. Um, but it's it's insofar as the technical object is um, is working in relation to a world. Um, so the 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 sails of the ship being um, being billowing in the wind uh, um, and uh, and carrying the ship um, is is beautiful because it's the ship integrated and in, in working in a world. Um, so it, it's it's only insofar as a technical object is working and um, uh, integrated into the world in its working that it is beautiful um, as a technical object, whereas um, just sort of dressing it up in a, in decorations doesn't integrate it in the world in that same way. I think I think that um, that my most um, re recognizable aesthetic experiences of beauty have all been related to this this specific relationship that Simone Din is painting out between the the work of technical objects in the world um whereas i um i i can appreciate in some sense it like you know aesthetic like like looking up into the stars or something like that um those aren't the aesthetic experiences that really stand out for me but rather this this kind of like working in the world of technical objects seems to have a a kind of primitive aesthetic power for me personally. I don't know how much of a, an aside that is or a tangent, but no, that's interesting. That uh, I mean, um, of course, there's going to be personal variation in terms of uh, which types of aesthetic experience are uh, have the most power for you, um, and that's that's uh, it's interesting. Um, so you're not uh, you're not like Kant, where you're you're filled with wonder by the starry sky above. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I I I have just as much wonder about the non-starry sky as the starry sky. But maybe this is because of it being kind of like a, I don't know that it's supposed to as a kind of false mystique that that is related to cultural factors, I guess. It's like everybody has constantly been telling me, oh, look at the stars, isn't this great? And I'm just thinking like, yeah, I guess this this is great. And I mean, it doesn't fill, fill me with an awe that's any greater than any, any other aesthetic experience, really. Right, um, and that's that's maybe an interesting example too, because he, uh, he in this text, Simon Don is, always uh, relating aesthetic thought to um, aesthetic productions of things that are produced by human beings, whereas the starry sky, of course, is not produced by human beings. Um, so it, it would be interesting to look at how that fits into his uh, schema here. Um, um, and, uh, you know, are, is, um, are, are these sort of natural surroundings or, or natural environments um, 
like when you have an aesthetic experience from a natural environment, is that something different than uh, an aesthetic experience from um, uh, a produced work of art? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm almost positive he's like about to to go into this, right? Like this is this has happened like three times so far. It's like I'm really curious at this point, and then he he addresses it in the next paragraph. Yeah, that's uh, quite possible. Maybe we should go on to the next one then, and we'll see. Oh, I'll, I'll go. I guess it's uh, the technical object, right? Yeah, exactly. The technical object is not beautiful in every circumstance. It is beautiful when it encounters a singular and remarkable place in the world. The high voltage line is beautiful when it traverses a valley, the car when it turns, the train when it enters or exits a tunnel. The technical object is beautiful when it has encountered a ground that suits it, whose own figure it can be, in other words, when it comp in, whose own figure it can be, in other words, when it completes and expresses the world. The technical object can even be beautiful with respect to an object that is larger than itself serving as its ground, in some ways as its universe. The radar antenna is beautiful when it is seen from the point of view of a ship sitting atop the highest superstructure. Placed on the ground, it is nothing more than a crude, rather crude cone mounted on a pivot. It was beautiful as the structural and functional completion of this whole ensemble that is the ship, but it is not beautiful in itself and without reference to a universe. Um, I guess that this paragraph kind of recapitulates what we were just talking about. So I'll just go on to the next one. This is sure. why the, okay. This is why the discovery of the beauty of technical objects cannot be left to perception alone. The function of the object needs to be understood and thought. In other words, a technical education is needed if the beauty of technical objects is to appear as an integration of technical schemas into a universe within the key points of this universe. How, for instance, could the beauty of a radio relay placed on a mountain and oriented towards another mountain where another relay is placed appear to the one who only sees a tower of mediocre height with a parabolic grid in which a very small dipole is placed? All of these figural structures need to be understood as emitting and receiving the bundle of directed waves that propagates from one tower to another through the clouds and the fog. It is with respect to this invisible, imperceptible, and real actual transmission that the whole ensemble formed by the mountains and the towers is beautiful, for the towers are placed at the key points of the two mountains in order to constitute the wireless cable. This type of beauty is as abstract as that of a geometric construction and the function of the object needs to be understood in order for its structure and the relation of this structure with the world to be correctly imagined and aesthetically felt. All right, so here we have um, um, the introduction of this idea of, of uh, technical education as essential for the production of this type of aesthetic experience. So it's not, uh, it's not just um, a, a sort of raw um, aesthetic experience from looking at a, a certain object. So, like in the uh, in the previous paragraph, when he talked about how the the radar um, uh, or the radar antenna, is, you know, just treated by itself, it's um, it's just a sort of weird shaped cone thing that doesn't really have any aesthetic value. Um, 
but then when it's integrated into the the ship and it's working then it becomes beautiful um, um, so it's only someone who understands that working of the the ship and of the radar antenna or of the uh, the radio towers on top of the two mountain peaks it's only when you understand the functioning that you can have an aesthetic experience from those technical objects um, so it sounds like um, there's a distinction between um, the sort of a, a work of art that would have a more sort of immediate um, um, appreciation uh, and then a technical object which can only be um, appreciated um, by someone who has that technical technical education and um, understands its mode of functioning. Uh, I am trying to think about an exceptional case of a technical object that's beautiful, uh, an object in disuse, for example. In that case, uh, the activity Simondo seems to be gesturing toward uh, is not there. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, deploying its power to transmit something or conduct something, but it is uh, fallen into disuse. Um, I have in mind this example of uh, parabolic sound dishes. I can give a link to it. Yeah, that would be that would be helpful if you can uh, if you can link to uh, what it looks like. But uh, what what I sorry what came to mind for me as you were talking about that is um, uh, ancient ruins. Um, uh, interesting, um, an acoustic mirror. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I was thinking of uh, ancient ruins, which have a, an aesthetic quality that's um, distinct from, you know, uh, uh, the same building um, that, that's preserved or that's been restored, for example. Um, so there's a there's a certain quality which, you know, this was like a, a sort of key um, um, figure for the Gothic. Um, um, movement or or aesthetic, um, the idea of the um, the ancient ruins, and you know, you even had people that would build build new ruins in their their garden or whatever. Um, um, so there's a there's a an aesthetic of ruins as such, which is not um, something that is um, uh, active and and working in the world in the same way that these technical objects that he's pointing to are. Um, so I wonder if that's a, an exception to um, to what he's uh, developing here, or or maybe that's um, a separate type of aesthetic experience. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think uh, ruins are the general would be the general category. Uh, you know, there are even uh, you know there there's a category called ruin porn, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I know that there is like, um, you know, there's there's people that that visit ghost towns, for example, to uh, like there's a certain aesthetic quality of a this empty town, um, and uh, you know the sort of ruins of a of what was a town at one point. Um, it has a certain its own aesthetic quality as well. So there, there's something um, distinct from uh, the technical object at work. There's a, a different type of aesthetic experience that you can get from this ruined technical object or um, technical object that is in disrepair. Um, so that, yeah, it'd be interesting to try to fit that into this schema and see how that works.
I guess that's the, the territory of the writer uh, Ballard. Right. Yeah, I'm. I'm only familiar with. Uh, I've only read a few of his stories, but uh, yeah, I think that is, that fits in with his work. Wait, who who did you mention? I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. Uh, J. G. Ballard. Oh, Ballard. Yeah, a science fiction author, or yeah, I guess mostly science fiction, um, but. Um, yeah, I don't really know his work very well, but uh, um, 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 yeah, I guess some of these sort of uh, ruined technical objects are, are sort of a, a, a theme or a motif found in his work. Especially Terminal Beach. Yeah, he's someone that I've had on my list that uh, I needed to uh, look into more. So uh, yeah, I, I'll move him up on my list to uh, to see if I can uh, get a hold of some of his uh, his books and read that in the near future. Sounds interesting. All right, so we found a uh, an exception that uh, that doesn't fit into what we've seen so far. We'll have to keep that in mind um, uh, and see if he maybe does um, explain where that would fit into um, his conception of the aesthetic experience uh, in a different way. We'll have to see what happens later on. Um, so we can go on to the next paragraph, I think, unless there's other comments. This paragraph looks like it's a full full page or. Yeah, he loves these long paragraphs. Oh, actually, yeah, I didn't realize the time. Maybe we should uh, um, stop here and, and leave that for the next uh, session because it's okay probably, with that. Yeah, um, it's probably going to take us past yeah. our, our two hours. I think we, we've had we've gotten more more than enough to chew on so far with with aesthetics. Aesthetics is always complicated, so. Um, I, I'm I'm okay with stopping here and um, and starting fresh next time with this paragraph. Yeah, this is a long section. So, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I feel the same way. I'm exhausted, I guess. Sure. Okay. So we'll stop here. Uh, we'll pick up at page 198 next time. Um, so I'll just uh, shut off the recording.